And good afternoon. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and this is Finding a Voice, a spoken word program airing here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. And we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And uh, coming up on the show today... In the first hour, and it will actually even run a bit over into the second, but I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh, in the first hour from an event held at the bookshop in Tamworth on October 19th, you'll hear readings by John Steffler, reading from his 41 pages on poetry, language, and wilderness, and Stan Draglin reading from his The Difficult. Uh, the readings were followed by a Q&A, and that will be the the portion, just a few minutes, I believe, of it will bleed over into the second hour. Following that, then, in the second hour, uh, from the October 1st, and the journey continues, open mic reading in that monthly series, you'll hear as yet unaired readings by Justin Gao, Leanne Taras, Tia Lun, Ken Chin, Sarah Emtish, Lyle Miriam, Sasha Hill, Ashwa Schiff, Alyssa Cooper, Adrienne Yee, Brent Raycroft, Eric Folsom, and me. And uh, this first, though, the usual hourly announcement. Uh, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So I tell you what, let's move straight into, again, an event held at the bookshop in Tamworth on October 19th. Uh, you will hear uninterrupted uh, both the readings and then the Q&A. So readings by John Steffler, again, as he read from 41 pages on poetry, language, and wilderness. And then Stan Draglin reading from his The Difficult. Uh, the readings, again, were followed by a Q&A, and as I mentioned, that will be a few, segment, a few minutes of that will bleed over into the second hour today. And so, so moving straight into uh, the event that, again, will fill this hour, plus a little bit more, uh, up first in it... Uh, the bookshop in Tamworth's owner, Robert Wright, will introduce and first bring up uh, to read John Steffler. Enjoy. Um, had good exposure today, too. We've uh, had uh, the main crossroads, crossroads in Tamworth have signage about our reading up today. So everybody drive, driving by would have seen. <laughs> Very nice. Um, our readers today are Stan Dragland and John Steffler. John is going to start. John's latest book is this beautifully produced 41 pages. It's a trade paperback edition. It's been put out by the University of Regina Press. They had uh, a hardcover version out before this. Um, I've not had a chance to uh, read much of this book. But every morning at the breakfast table since it has arrived, uh, I've been watching someone who has been reading this book. 
me how wonderful it is. Um, and it's actually... Um, you can buy a second copy. She's actually been making quotations out of it, and it's probably going to be used uh, in, in her work. So um, John's uh, books are often beautifully produced. This was uh, his previous book, German Mills, um, that he read from here. He had quite an entertaining reading here a couple of years ago. Um, would you please welcome John Stefflitz. First of all, I want to thank Robert and Laurie for uh, hosting these readings once again. It's always a huge pleasure to be, be here. Uh, I've been here mostly in the audience and I've always enjoyed the readings and presentations of others, writers, and it's a great privilege to also be here as a reader once in a while. And I want to thank you all for coming out um, on this beautiful Saturday. I sort of imagined uh, most people would be wanting to uh, uh, go to the market or paint the garage or something. Well, first of all, I'm going to say that uh, the reason I called this book 41 Pages is that it contains or consists of 41 uh, short essays and poems on the subject of, very broadly, of the page. And by the page, I, I mean uh, a kind of synecdoche or uh, a kind of icon for reading and writing, and more broadly um, as a symbol for art making in all forms. Um, uh, and I, I want to uh, point out that it was Phil Hall who got me started on this project when uh, several years ago he invited me to give the page lecture and uh, in, in Kingston at Queen's, which, which we just, many of us, uh, attended yesterday. Um, and once I started thinking along those lines, it took me quite a while to stop. And uh, at this point, <laughs> thinking about the page, it was, it was driving me crazy. Um, I'd like to say that, uh, that what interests me is not so much the physical page, or the page as a technical uh, medium for expression, but more um, the, I guess I could say, more the, the urge to express or make something that in the first place calls up or creates a page. And uh, um, there's a sense in which, uh, I guess, function for me precedes form or privileges, is, is privileged over form in this respect, at least in this thinking about the page and about writing. Um, and, and for me, the, the uh, impulse that I'm looking at in these pieces uh, to, to write poetry or to make art often comes from um, an experience, either a sought-out experience of wilderness or an unexpected experience of something that uh, disturbs um, my or our sense of a kind of cultural space in which we live, a, a safe, secure space, a predictable space. There are things, accidents, uh, problems, disasters that, uh, that disrupt our orderly world and this often seems to be this interface with something uh, mysterious or turbulent or chaotic, uh, you know, an experience of forgetting in a world that I normally remember and so on. It's often these moments that uh, seem to me to trigger uh, poetry or make me want to write a poem. So the poem kind of stands beside a thinning uh, in, our, in what I think of as the, the cultural walls in which I live. 
Um, so these, these essays are about that. They're about poetry, language, and wilderness. And in many ways, they examine, I think, uh, what it is to be human. Uh, and, and, uh, and I examine also, in terms of wilderness, um, whether it's possible to make art about wilderness without uh, freezing it or killing it in some way, you know, killing mystery. So I'm going to read one short essay and three poems. Um, before I read the essay, though, the, the essay is about um, a photograph, a page in the form of a photograph, and I want you all to be able to see this photograph before <laughs> I read the essay. So um, I'm going to hand these around, and uh, I'll pass the pack out further, but just to hand these out, and then I'll explain something about this in a minute. Uh, could you just pass the rest of those along? And Hugh, Hugh here, would you pass some of those around the back? And if anybody doesn't get one, I've got more up here. Yeah, uh, how many I got there? See, just give up. Written around. Pass these. Pass these around the back. Okay. Here, Phil. Now, if you take a look at this. Okay. There's one more coming there. I want you all to have one. I think we need a few more back. Okay. There we go. Thank you. No, I don't have one. We're good. Um, you're too hot. Okay. There's also a couple chairs. Okay, so when you look at it, uh, this is a, a photograph taken beyond Saturn of the rings of Saturn, and in the center of it in the dark space, you'll notice a, a small white dot. It looks like a piece of lint on the photo. Well, that's the Earth. Okay. That's the Earth. And uh, so when I saw that photograph, it was now quite a few years ago, um, it, it blew my mind. And so here's an essay um, that I wrote about this. Uh, it's called The Day the Earth Smiled. This photo was taken on July 19th, 2013 by the space probe Cassini during its orbit of Saturn, 900 million miles from Earth. The Earth appears in the photo as a tiny blue dot below Saturn's rings. The Cassini imaging team had announced in advance that they were planning to aim the probe's camera toward the Earth on that day. To draw attention to the event, team member Carolyn Porco urged people all around the Earth to wave to the sky and smile at the time that the photo was being taken. She gave the photo the title, The Day the Earth Smiled. I was dumbstruck when I first saw this image. That initial feeling has already faded a lot, and getting used to the image is becoming part of our cultural iconography, but I still find it very powerful. It seems <coughs> full of contradiction or paradox. It showcases the achievement of human technology at the same time that it hits us with the minute, finite nature of the Earth, our only home. It obliterates the notion that humans are masters of the universe at the same time that it, that it extends our eyeballs deep into outer space. But look at the spatial scale 
the blue dot compared to the rest of space. And this is just a corner of the solar system, not the universe as a whole. We are tiny, 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 and totally dependent on this tiny planet. We'd better look after it. It's all we've got. I shouldn't be so disturbed by this photo. I knew about space-based telescopes. I've seen images from the Hubble telescope, spiral nebulae, crab nebulae, <clears throat> vast galaxies of luminous gases. But seeing those images, I was always looking out. I accepted the notion that the telescope is just an extension of the human eye. I took it for granted that the Earth was under me, behind me, large and solid, as I gazed out into infinity. The Earth and all of us, human culture, human history, still seemed central to the world. But here, suddenly, the telescope turns on us, and I feel like a cartoon sleepwalker waking up 900 million miles away from his bedroom window in outer space. Yikes. Or I'm like Orpheus, who thought that Eurydice was following him, but turned to look just in time to see her shrinking away back into Hades, shrinking into a blue dot, leaving him alone in an infinite void. Photographs are always about both the object shown and the act of seeing it. They implicate us, whether we like it or not, in the photographer's act of looking and the means of looking, the camera's mechanics and the photographer's motives, whether adoring or critical, prurient, grieving or documentary. Even an unmanned device taking pictures at random conveys the philosophy behind the photographic technique the sense that events are random and disjointed, or perhaps that some mysterious synchronicity is at work, or that someone is spying. When I look at this photo, I see the precious blue dot, but I'm not on that dot, waving and smiling. I'm linked to the camera. I'm in outer space. And so the photo seems fraught with a feeling of farewell, of leaving home, leaving family, friends, nation, sailing away forever. I want an adjective for this, like nostalgic or elegiac, and wonder why we don't have one. Could I say valeic, from the Latin vale, farewell? I feel such longing for that blue dot. Can there be anything alien on the earth? Everything there must be our kin. Every animal, every creature and rock and molecule of the atmosphere must be human, or we must be part of all the Earth. Could there be any wilderness there in the sense of an alien, non-human region? All the wilderness is surely in the surrounding space, the vast, uninhabitable surrounding space. And we seem to be sailing away not only from the Earth, but from the human. The photo was taken by a robot with 900 million mile long optic nerve floating in a place I doubt any living human will ever visit. 
In that way, this photo of Earth is very different from the first iconic 1960s-era whole Earth catalog image, which reflected what astronauts and cosmonauts, our representatives, were actually seeing from their space capsules. We could imagine them peeking out a portal, snapping the photo with a brownie instamatic. But in order to accept that this Cassini photo reflects a common contemporary stage of human awareness, we'll have to accept that we have become dependent on robots. The question is, what is essentially human? Are we a formula, a code for building self-replicating systems and structures, a signal like a virus that can be transmitted through space and reconstituted in various media by 3D printers? Or are we earthly animals? I think of myself, as an earthly animal. But we know that this blue dot is becoming crowded with people and threatened by our incessant restructuring of nature and by our cast-off junk in every form, from nuclear waste to carbon dioxide, from nanoparticles of silver and plastic to synthetic hormones. Maybe that's why the robot's eye is a way out here. Are we groping for new ground, like a rhizome or runner from a plant in a pot of exhausted soil? But if so, why should we think the Earth is too small for us, since we are so inventive and the Earth is so bountiful, having supported so much life for so many millions of years? I wish we could gather some of the mystery and wilderness from the space around the Earth in this photo and infuse it into the blue dot to expand it again, to make it seem limitless and solid around us. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read three poems, probably without saying very much about each of them, but they kind of follow in this theme I was talking about. Um, what it, what it is to be human and uh, and wilderness really looking at looking out from culture at wilderness and looking at wilderness within culture within ourselves <clears throat> this is called I haven't looked at these in years my beloved father was human here is his hand holding his knife it's how I still remember him I laid the knife under his hand and covered him. My beloved sister was human. Mine were the last fingers to touch hers. I placed this needle, it looks smaller here than it was, between her finger and thumb. My father used to say, whatever eats leaves waste and hands are hungrier than mouths. He said, Human hands are born toothless, but make their own teeth. Here I am with my brush, and here with the camera, beloved brush. The camera I'm not so sure about. It meant a lot of arguing about catching God. Here you notice I've got it in both hands, very human. And here I'm holding it in my teeth for a joke. My father would have hated that. This pipe in my uncle's mouth, see, my beloved uncle, 
was always a problem. Only animals carry with their mouths, my beloved father said. Leave the ashes, the scraps, the slash, the bones. We're made to go forward, he said. That's why we haven't got eyes in the backs of our heads or toes behind our heels. Here's my beloved aunt holding a pistol, my sickly cousin with a book, some close-ups, hand with rosary, steering wheel, telephone, cheese grater, matches, food dish, beloved shoe. My father said, never carry junk. Remember, people only if you can describe their hands, them touching you, some of them. Hands want to reach for what's clean, what's young, he said. What's past is past, or, or maybe past is past. Now, he said, is for packing up. Here he's shutting the trunk of the car. Since life values nothing higher than life, and because animate matter always has at its core a soft quick, and brains and hearts need to be nearly mush, the great currencies have all been versions of flint. Even the earth favors gladiators over poets. Limestone makes its bullion from thick skulls and teeth. Only once in a lucky while we find fossils of flowers or tongues. But those pure hard tools for cutting and smashing survive the millennia, still clearly describing their vanished opposite, the hot flowering beauty their makers fed and defended. I claim this, that all the axes, spears, arrows, swords, and daggers were for guarding tender life, not ripping it. I claim this. I claim this. I claim this. Shut up. I claim this. 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 Finally. Openings. I have brought my... I'm sorry. I have brought my tray of tea to the screen house. Damp June morning, almost too dark to read. Down the small slope, there's the garden's unfinished cedar fence I was working on yesterday. Gateway posts at odd heights. The dampness darkens another degree down, then down again. Air blurred with wet wood, settling its weight, slackening like a slowly opening palm showing a small pearl, a faint ping like a fallen tree seed on the tin roof, a stretching silence, and another soft ping, the same here-not-here fulcrumed presence as the black and yellow garter snake I found resting on the handsaw's flat blade last evening when I was gathering the tools. Maybe enjoying the sun-heated metal, its straight-mouthed, utterly unfake face, white-plated lips 
and obsidian bead eyes, so real it could not be distinguished from other things. I slid the saw out slowly from under the snake, leaving it taut and curled on the straw bale, cold living flame. It only looked at me, flickering its tongue. I, too, was invisible. Um, I don't know whether we're going to have a kind of a question and answer period at the very end after Stan has read, or you know, it's probably the, the way to go about it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Thank you, John. You always give wonderful readings here. That's very nice. Um, and I, I love question and answer periods. Here they, they always seem to work well, so, uh, so I look forward to that as well. Um, our next reader is Stan Dragland. Um, Stan is well known to many of you. Um, kind of a local for a guy who lives in St. John's, Newfoundland. Um, part of a rich uh, community um, that used to be around Bell Rock and Verona. That uh, it still endures, but it was particularly uh, um, a hotbed of creativity around the time Stan was part of it. Um, his new book is called *The Difficult*. It's published by Peddler Press. It arrived today with Stan. <laughs> um, and uh, heavy books are heavy, heavy books. It's a heavy book, but it's it's very handsome and beautifully produced. Uh, a typical Peddler Press production in that regard. And um, well, we'd like, uh, I'd like to, to uh, have Stan come up and uh, read a selection from it. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Uh, it's nice to be here in one of my most favorite spaces in all the world among <laughs> some of my favorite people. And I suggested that John join me on this program for various reasons. <clears throat> One is that I read uh, 41 pages and just thought the world of it. And I knew that as kind of a sub-theme of my book uh, I, could, I could make fit with one of his books. Uh, if I'd known he was bringing a handout, I, would <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just wouldn't have, you know, just to hell with it. Uh, I got no handout. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, I thought it would be nice to say in public something I don't believe I've ever said to John. And that is uh, how deeply I admire his writing. Mm -hmm. I re remember once teaching The Afterlife of George Cartwright. And I don't think this has ever happened to me before, but uh, we finished it within, in class, and I thought, I don't want to go on to the next book. <laughs> I want to think some more about this one. Um, it's not the only book of John's that I admire deeply, but uh, thank you, John. The Difficult is a book about reading and writing and teaching, but it has a sub-theme of environmental concern, and I'd like to read you a section that has to do with that. Um, <clears throat> it comes off of some writing about Lisa Moore's novel February and Alice Munro's writing. 
And I'll just read you the, the passage from uh, Lisa Moore that uh, I'll be picking up on. John sees that all these things existed before he came along. The eyelash, the toaster, the parties. And it is a revelation of rock-your-world proportion. Each object and moment belongs to itself, has always done so. And this is not something he can put into words. But sometimes he feels left out, left out of the world. I turn to Moore from Monroe partly because I feel in both writers, and others like Margaret Avison, the same care for the external world, a proto-ecological sensitivity. That rock your world eyelash toaster party's revelation in Lisa Moore's February, for example, has a parallel in a very different book, Vibrant Matter, A Political Ecology of Things. In Vibrant Matter, Jane Bennett finds herself having such a vision in Baltimore as she survives, surveys a pile of trash. Glove, pollen, rat, cap, stick. As I encountered these items, they shimmied back and forth between debris and thing. Between, on the one hand, stuff to ignore, except as it betokened human activity, the workman's efforts, the litterer's toss, the rat poisoner's success, and, on the other hand, stuff that commanded attention in its own right, as existence in excess of their association with human meanings, habits, or projects. In the second moment, stuff exhibited its thing power. It issued a call, even if I did not quite understand what it was saying. At the very least, it provoked affects in me, I was repelled by the dead, or was it merely sleeping, rat, and dismayed by the litter. But I also felt something else, a nameless awareness of the impossible singularity of that rat, that configuration of pollen, that otherwise utterly banal mass-produced plastic water bottle cap. Why advocate the vitality of matter, Bennett asks, as she moves into her capacious study of thing power, embracing philosophy, the sciences, and the arts, a confluence of sophisticated thinking that bears on ecology and is meant to influence political theory and practice. Because, she answers, my hunch is that the image of the dead or thoroughly instrumentalized matter feeds human hubris and our earth-destroying fantasies of conquest and consumption. We need to cultivate a bit of anthropomorphism, the idea that human agency has some echoes in non-human nature, to counter the narcissism of humans in charge of the world. From this thought place, various other fascinating avenues extend. One takes us into a book whose title summarizes its subject, Peter Walleben's The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel, How They Communicate, Discoveries from a Secret World. Another goes to Anna Lowenhaupt Sings The Mushroom at the End of the World. On the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins. She says, Matsutake are wild mushrooms that live in human disturbed forests. If we open ourselves to their fungal attractions, Matsutake can catapult us 
into the curiosity that seems to me the first requirement of collaborative survival in precarious times. The authors of these and other recent cross-disciplinary books like Mary Midgley's Science and Poetry are bravely thinking their and feeling their way toward a crucial revision of the way humans regard and deal with non-human sharers of the planet. The hope is to exert enough pressure on the dominant technocracy to remediate the destructive action that has come of it and relieve us from what Dennis Lee has called the death watch. Can this be done? The title poem of Julie Brooks' 2018 book of poems is How to Avoid Huge Ships. The title itself borrowed from a mariner's guide by Captain John W. Trimmer. The poem ends like this. In Captain Trimmer's most fervent desire that this book serve as guide and best friend when you find yourself in a tight situation with a large ship, I found some solace. Such lumbering vessels, he remarks, are slow to turn. They can be very difficult to stop. The poem has to do with a mother's dying, thus the need for solace. But it resonates with other poems in the book about a world that may well be out of control. It also resonates with the themes of those ardent guides to smarter thinking just mentioned. We are on a huge ship. Can it be turned? Or had we better just prepare for the end? Perhaps with the companionship of a book by Jan Zwicky and Robert Bringhurst called Learning to Die, Wisdom in the Age of Climate Crisis. Now, you're supposed to have read through the book to this point. <laughs> and then I say this. For me, if not for you, there has been an elephant in the room of all this writing, a pull to pessimism so bleak that I have resisted coming right out with it. Finally, I think it would be dishonest to withhold. What is the point of writing now if there's no stopping that ship? What's the point of trying to persuade other people to take pains, to be patient with difficult books, and good to each other? The end won't come in my lifetime. It's possible for many to soldier on these days as though it weren't coming at all. It's not as though all my sources of joy and living have dried up. I'm having a decent time right now. <laughs> That's not in the book. <laughs> But I have children and grandchildren. It won't even be for them to sing the terminal blues because Homo sapiens may have many millennia left. The planet will have much longer than that before our sun finally dies. But it may be in the lifetime of my children to take just one instance of coming trouble when low-lying islands in the oceans find themselves submerged and their populations scattered to end up where? Millions of climate refugees are already on the move, and the parts of the world they wish to reach are not reaching out to them. Now, I should sing the, 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 the next little four lines, but I'm not rehearsed. Well, I'm a stranger here in this place called Earth, and I was sent down here to discover the worth of your little blue planet, third from the sun. Come on and show me what you've done. 
that's five-man electrical band, in 1973, working the satirical trope of the outsider parachuted into a foreign culture. In the song, The Stranger's Approach gets him a tour of the little blue planet, conducted by earthlings who are right proud of all the riches they've got, all the many fruits of progress they get to enjoy. Eventually, after the stranger off gently offers a few questions and reservations about what he's hearing, it's only my first impression, of course, the boasting reserve resumes. Finally, the stranger has had enough. He breaks into lament. Oh, you crazy fools. Don't you know you had it made? You were living in paradise. I love that song. It's a great song. D.A. Levy was a Cleveland poet called a beatnik by the powers of that city. He wanted to write Cleveland. He wanted the city he loved to have its own major poem, like William Carlos Williams' Patterson, about Patterson, New Jersey. This was during the 60s, when officialdom and the counterculture were so often at odds. David Aylward and B.P. Nickel had published Levy in the 1967 first number of their little magazine, Gronk, and Levy was the subject of one of Nichols' earliest pieces of critical writing. Levy had fallen, af fallen afoul of the Cleveland police, ostensibly for the four-letter words in his poems, and the allegation that he had corrupted a minor with them. This is B.P. Nickel now. <laughs> Levy is now in the position of being persecuted by a society which he attempted to liberate from a concrete level of language, arrested on a very trumped-up charge of obscenity, the cement fucked by the great society. It is undoubtedly true, as Levy mentions, that it is really the narcotics squad, squad that is out to get him, but nonetheless it is interesting and indicative that they choose to persecute him on an obscenity charge. And that the judge said to Levy when Levy told him he made 89 cents a day for his poems, Bail of $2,500 is not excessive for a great poet. Maybe he should charge more than the 89 cents. <laughs> Difficult to expect understanding there in the great society. Under the rubric of the great society, President Lyndon B. Johnson had instituted a program to eliminate poverty and racial justice. Even then, 1964-65, the tag seemed hyperbolic and ironic. Don't hype it. Just do it. Levy's obscenity charge was eventually dropped, but it had placed him not the most stable individual at the best of times, under a lot of pressure. Finally, he shot himself. I have lately been haunted by B.P. Nichols' Lament, a sound poem to the memory of D.A. Levy, who took his own life, November 1968. All good poems are meant to be sounded, but it's of the first importance to hear this one. You can find it as a voice under in Sons of Captain Poetry, Michael Ondaatje's documentary film about B.P. Nickel. You're a city hall, my people. Look what you've become, I said. You're a city hall, my people. Look what you've done, I said. It was on and on and on until modulating in tone and intensity, but eventually it rises to a scream. And I won't scream at you, but understand these words are meant to be screamed. 
Look what you've become. Look what you've done. Look what you've become. Look what you've done. City Hall equals those of us, my people, who run things, not just cities. They are running things into the ground. Sometimes a fellow just wants to expletive deleted, scream at the tragic abuse and waste of paradise. Scream and then what? Lie down and wait for the end? That won't do. No, I may be obliged to live under a cloud of decline, decline in the era that elected, that saw Donald Trump come to power, but a person has to keep on keeping on, as the 60s cliche had it. There is no alternative. Gird up the old loins, safeguard the family jewels, free up the legs, and head back out into battle. That is, in fact, what Bringhurst and Zwicky recommend. There is nothing morbid about learning to die, calmly and incisively, neither swearing nor screaming. They advocate going down singing with dignity, fortified by a sense, with a sense of virtue carefully defined, and with full commitment to doing whatever we can to mitigate the bad effects of climate change. They are good company in dark times. And here is a picture that shows you how to gird up your loins. <laughs> if I'm going to be keeping on, doing my best to mobilize my best, as I have tried to do in this book, I'm really going to need my sense of humor. If I can just hold on to my sense of humor, I should be able to keep on. I find how to gird up your loins funny. Girding is literally obsolete now that we wear pants. Most of us, all of us maybe today. <laughs> uh, but while we're laughing, if you'll agree to, to join me, we're also learning. We're learning something. I had just a general idea of what girding was before looking it up. Now I could gird up <laughs> at need, uh, given the right outfit. So could you. Now we know where the common expression came from and what it meant before turning into a metaphor, then a cliché, for gathering oneself together to meet the struggle ahead, whatever that struggle might happen to be. Faring forward with inner life expanded and enriched is sometimes the good result of looking back to the roots of meanings now split off from their origins. Jan Zwicky does that with the word virtue which has come to mean, this is her, come to mean almost the opposite of its Latin root. It connotes the stereotypically feminine traits of meekness, purity, and quiet obedience. The Greek word, by contrast, emphasizes excellence without explicit reference to sex, or indeed to species. To possess virtue was to excel at being the thing you were. It was to be a noble exemplar. Socrates died as he lived, in virtue. That's what he offers him as a model. We should approach the coming cataclysm as we ought to have approached life. That we is all of us who are running things into the ground. We individuals are still obliged to do better, our best. 
Now I've talked myself back into fettle enough to resume where I left off. Not, you understand, that I've been trying to talk myself out of anything said in this section. <laughs> so that's not what the book is about. <laughs> uh, and I can, I think, show you literally, because there's one other picture in this book. It's a two-picture book, <laughs> this one. Uh, I, can, I can show you just by showing the picture and describing it, what the book is about. I think in Parc des Trois-Berets in Saint-Jean-Port-Joli, on the southern bank of the St. Lawrence River in eastern Quebec, there is a wooden sculpture by Mohammed Tahiri called Beyond. A mustachioed man, perhaps an angel, perhaps a wizard holding a book up into his up to his face. You're really gonna have to buy the book to get a good <laughs> He's carved in, in wood. And he's he's not only holding the book up to his face, his face is going right into it. It's like in Newfoundland they say He's face and eyes into it. <laughs> Sorry about the second row. <laughs> it's okay, I bought the book. <laughs> uh, he is pushing his face right into the book. He is so far into the book that he's almost coming out the other side. His visage is emerging through the cover. This is an astonishing image to have car been carved so precisely in a medium as resistant as wood. That <laughs> fellow face and eyes into his book is a lover. He's my alter ego. He does look anxious. I believe he knows that wholehearted reading carries a heavy responsibility. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> If there are no, no questions, the weather is really nice outside. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question. Um, it comes out of what John read and was talked about a little bit, but I think it's a question for both of you. Um, is, is there a sense in which language is wild? Uh, probably not. I think it, uh, at its best, it's gesturing in the direction John wants to go, trying to get a sense of it. I don't think language itself um, you know, just as a, as a concept is wild. It's a, it's a taming of a, in fact, of what we uh, um, try to say. And, but the best writing is always trying to find a way past that limitation. It aspires, right? It would, I think. It, sometimes language aspires to be wild. Yeah, it does. I think. But I don't know that it ever can do that. 
No, I don't think it. I don't think it's the way. John is doing the best he can. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, when I say that, yeah. it's it's uh, wonderful to. You know, what I'd say first of all is, is it partly depends on how you define language. There are those, um, you know, who would argue that uh, non-human creatures also have language, and that even the ability to interpret the the import or the meaning of a sound constitutes a kind of language. You know, if a crow hears a car coming along the highway, it takes off because it knows that that's danger. But is that language? I would be inclined to say no, uh, partly because I believe that for language to function at all, it means there has to be a commonly understood uh, body of, of signs or words, if you like. You know, it's. Uh, an individual system of meaning, of you know, a sort of semiotic system that I invent, where a certain sound means something, or you know, certain orthographic symbols mean something, isn't really a language. It's something I invent, but unless it's shared by a lot of people and is a kind of currency that can be used for for meaning or for planning and so on, then it's not a language. So is there such a thing as a wild language? I'm inclined to th agree with Stan, no. But again, agreeing with Stan, it's something that poets, and I, I guess, uh, you know, aspire to. Uh, but there's always a line beyond which if, if you attempt to make a kind of objective correlative in language of wilderness, you're making something that nobody else can understand. You're using language strictly for its sound, or you're you know, distorting words or inventing new words, and once again, it ceases to be a language. It becomes, I guess, a work of art that, that represents <coughs> something, but is it a, is it a language, uh, strictly speaking? No. So. I'm reminded of uh, something Al Purdy said about the way Michael Ondaatje writes. Uh, if, you've, if you've read Ondaatje, you, you probably run across a few sentences that don't sound right. They sound better than right. <laughs> and Al Purdy once said, he writes beneath the skin. Now that's a metaphor uh, for getting something that, you know, it's, in some ways language is not supposed to do. Uh, but the metaphor is always looking in that direction. Yeah, sure. Put things together that don't belong together and they somehow fit. That's, there's a certain wildness in, in that, sometimes, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, this is where poetry comes in, that um, poetry, I think, is as close as a language can get to reviving um, uh, a variety of ways of meaning and understanding. It's, it's first of all, the sound of words, um, and the way they feel in the mouth when we speak them, that, that physical dimension. Uh, um, that goes into play in language um, and uh, uh, imagery and so on and, and the use of deliberate use of contradictions and ambiguity these are things that uh, say in, uh, in legal texts or in scientific texts where all doubt and misunderstanding has to be uh, eliminated um, language is almost pure uh, denotation but in poetry connotation and ambiguity 
plays an important part in <coughs> signaling or conjuring a, a, an emotional response or an intuitive understanding. So in this sense, language can push toward, I guess you could say, the wild or um, you know, something a-cultural or extra-cultural, but it, uh, it, it's, it's, still, it's still a human creation and uh, ultimately gets us back into culture and away from the wild. Yeah, Michael. Well, uh, I take the person who asked the question, because I know your poetry. <laughs> uh, I would think, from my limited understanding of poetry, That's wild, in a way. It's not tamed. Right. <coughs> you know, there's various other poets in the room who yeah. disagree. <laughs> I don't think you find any disagreement with that at all. What about misconstruction, misunderstanding, and sort of adapts when you know all those ways that language doesn't entirely work to achieve what we hope it'll achieve? To Inadvertent or unintended? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, how about some of that? We're looking, at, my friends and I were looking at uh, Japanese translations of uh, various instructions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> English is so very strange, it's just wonderful. <laughs> heading in the wild in the wrong direction. <laughs> but, you know, it's like delight you get from the incongru incongruity. What was one of the things about take off your shoes? Um, Do you remember? Lift up off your shoes. Lift up off oh, your shoes. That's <laughs> 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 a, a small poem. You got two prepositions? Three. <laughs> two. Lift up Lift off your up. shoes. Up off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and various games uh, that uh, play that, that turn up things that aren't intended. Yeah. I guess you could say, you know, the, you know, these are also ways to try to um, um, find meaning in language that's outside of deliberate control and more a matter of accident or chance. You know that. Uh, you know, this poets have been doing this for a long time. Stefan Mallarmé's, uh, you know, the roll of the dice is this idea. Uh, using chance and uh, you know, sort of un unintended uh, configurations in language to 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 stumble upon you know illuminating meanings and uh, suggestions. I could spend a lot of time talking about this. <laughs> There's a new book uh, by Martha Bailey and Christina Bailey called Sister Language. Uh, Christina Bailey uh, is schizophrenic. And her relationship to language, in a way, is to be language, because language kind of writes her. And the things that come out uh, of hers, well, they they feel wild. They feel wild. And in fact, some of it uh, she couldn't get other people to read. But in this book, it's been tamed enough so that you feel that wild spirit that comes from somewhere that. that Nobody else can write like that, except maybe for three people, James Joyce, um, Beckett, and... Uh, Arthur Rimbaud? Uh, no, uh, Gertrude Stein. Mm -hmm. These are the three people that, uh, that Christina 
they're the triumvirate she most admires. Um, and her writing, to my mind, is right up there with that. Um, but it comes at a great cost because she can't live in the real world. So she has access to something some of us would love to get at, but. Hi, you guys are old enough as, as I am almost to remember that we've had an end of the world threatening us for good, more than half a century now. Um, and I was thinking recently that perhaps the conditions have actually improved. Um, <coughs> I don't mean in a Stephen Pinker sense that there's less violence. And, so many people are less hungry, which turns out not to be true anyway. But um, in the sense that it's no longer a, well, let's say a, a diplomatic catastrophe that could end us all in a week. And now is at least something we have some foreknowledge of and a good generation or two to uh, learn to cope with, or if we can, reverse it. If there isn't... Uh, more room for hope now, and uh, and some explanation for what appears to be complacence in the segment of the younger generation that is not excited about Greta Thunberg or or doing anything other than living their lives as more easily perhaps than than the young people found it to to lead their lives in the sixties. Uh, is it easier now? And is the rhetoric of raising people's consciousness thus becoming perhaps more difficult? Yeah, do you want to jump in there, Stan? <laughs> well, maybe, maybe it's time for me to read uh, something I brought along here. I'm not even sure it fits, but maybe it does. Um, because... Uh, I don't know if you think about this, John, but there's this business of preaching to the choir, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. which is uh, like yeah, when I talk to people class? like you folks who are gathered here, you probably know. Uh, well, I found this by uh, something called Preaching to the Choir by Re Rebecca Solnit. This is from uh, The Atlantic, I think it at Harper's. Uh, she's worried about preaching to the choir. And it turns out, you know, she's thinking, well, what is preaching? And I don't mean lecturing, hectoring people. Uh, so she asked, <laughs> she asked some preachers about that. I hope this is going to be of some use. <laughs> if not, I like it anyway. <laughs> to suggest that you shouldn't preach to the choir is to misunderstand the nature of preaching. And she goes on to say, Karen Haygood Stokes, a minister in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who formerly belonged to the San Francisco Symphony Choir, explained to me that her aim is not so much to persuade people to believe as it is to encourage them to inquire into existing beliefs. My task as a preacher is to find the places of agreement and then move somebody from there, not to change anybody's mind 
but to deepen an understanding. The common ground among her parishioners is not just is not the destination, it's the starting point. Have we thought critically about why we agree? It's a call to go deeper, to question yourself. <coughs> well, that's, it seems to be necessary. And it's hard sometimes to look around and see people asking that kind of question of themselves. But whether it's, mm -hmm. we're doing better now than we were, I don't know, in some quarters, yes. Yeah, but in enough quarters? Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, it's not, I think, really a, a question for a poet to answer. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, I think, uh, or one me. that uh, um, biologists and scientists, I suppose, would have a, you know, more to say about, more meaningful. All I, all I can say personally is that I think that uh, some of the same... Uh, doubts and fears were in play for the same reasons. It, that is to say, when you know nature, the natural world as well as human civilization seemed to be threatened by the atom bomb, uh, you know, beginning in the 1950s, um, it also implicated the whole of industrial culture. It, it, it's as though that, right. that was a, the, yeah. the, the hideous the epitome. The protest songs of yeah. the period, it wasn't yeah. just the bomb. And, and this was a, a realization that began even in the early 20th century. It was one of the things D.H. Lawrence and a lot of people saw at the time of the First World War, that was this the great flowering of the Victorian hope that you know, a wonderful new future lay in store for humanity through science and industry and so on. If the best we could do with it was to blow ourselves up with weapons, then it really called into question the whole value of the industrial culture and you know, Western civilization. So that was already present, I think, in the 1950s. It's just that now, I think, that's just so much more unavoidable uh, on an intricate kind of grassroots level because even in 1970, the, you know, the level of species extinction wasn't as high as it is now. I think you know what we're witnessing, and I see it around just you know where, where I live there near Perth. There are far fewer birds than there used to be, and you know there are no bees anymore, and so on. So I think what what we're facing is not so much the possibility of a sudden cataclysmic destruction through diplomatic stupidity as a, a, a gradual but inevitable destruction of the natural world, um, and, and somehow. That seems more horrifying, I think, because it's pervasive. It's not, it's not the result of a single act, but it's a cumulative result of the way we live. It's making you feel better? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm speaking for optimism already. <laughs> well, you have, to, you have to, as I say, find a way to keep on. I want to I wanna reroute us just for a minute. Just because I wanted to say how much I enjoyed John's writing about the process mm -hmm. of of writing about creating, because I think and the relationship to the reader as being somebody who's deeply moved by literature, but I don't write. But I I take um, real pleasure in synchronicity when I'm reading because yeah. mm -hmm. you know I'm always flaunting lines at Robert like this is for today. Mm -hmm. These things. So you talked about the faith you have that somehow your work is going to reach yes. a reader eventually. And I, yes. I found that very moving. But also that you talk about the um, purpose of language, the function yes. of language. I, in my day job, I work with a deaf autistic man who didn't have any language until he was 30. Wow. Mm -hmm. And he learned to read through drawing. Yeah. And he reads now. 
maybe five to six hundred words. But his world has opened up. But he did have a language yes. before without any ability to sign or read. And so you've kind of made me look at that differently. And I just really love what you've done. Thank, Thank you. you very much. <laughs> Let's have some snacks. <laughs> Thank you both. And you just heard from an event held at the bookshop in Tamworth, in Tamworth, at, uh, on October 19th. Uh, these were readings by John Steffler from his 41 pages on poetry, language, and wilderness, and Stan Draglin from his The Difficult, and then their Q&A that followed. Tell you what, I really need to air these, and then I'll be right back, greet you into the second hour. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. There's a listener-supported radio station. It means that people can get daily, every day, a different way of looking at the world, not just what the corporate media want you to see, but a different picture, a different understanding, but a different picture, a different understanding. Not only can you hear it, but you can participate in it. You can add your own thoughts, you know, and you can learn something and so on. Well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way uh, people become... Uh, human, you know, that's the way you become human participants in a, in a social and political system. Folk Everything, every Saturday morning from 10 till noon on CFRC. Traditional folk, modern folk, future folk, and strange deviations from the norm. Hear the legacy of folk music and discover new favorites and forgotten classics on Folk Everything. Join me every Saturday morning at 10 for a romp through folk culture here on CFRC. Says Red to James, that's a fine motorbike. I'm David Suzuki. Cut your heat and energy use by 10% and you'll be making a real difference combating global warming. The future is in your hands. Shrink your footprint, grow your wallet, cool the planet. Find out how at davidsuzuki.org. And just ahead of the uh, announcements there, uh, the Q&A did run, as I told you it would, a few minutes over 5 o'clock. And uh, let's just kind of formally greet you into the second hour. And now it's about seven minutes later than normal. uh, And let you know you're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. 
here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And just want to remind you, because I normally do this at the end of each hour, but this uh, ran over, so I just want to, because it was a little longer, and it's going to happen again. There are a couple of other events I've recorded that will run past the hour, so... Uh, but I do want to remind everyone that uh, every hour each week uh, is uploaded to my blog, Space Fort, shortly after I get home. And uh, we'll remain there four years at Finding a Voice on CFRCFM.wordpress.com. And uh, let's go ahead and move into the second hour today. And uh, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. And uh, staying tuned into the second hour. I've got uh, three sessions. Uh, hopefully, I can get them all in. Whoa, I'm seeing more than that here. What's going on? Oh, I just realized I've got uh, more than I thought. Here, let me double check something. Yeah, I do think I only aired the first uh, session, and of the uh, and the journey continues open mic reading. But that's what we're going to be hearing. Let me just find uh, the one I need here to come up first, actually. And as I wait for that to happen. Uh, thank you for tuning in. You will be hearing in this uh, hour readings by uh, Justin Gao, Lee Ann Terrace, Tia Lun, Ken Chin, Sarah Emtage, Lyle Merriam, Joshua Schiff, Alyssa Cooper, Adrian Yi, Brent Raycroft, William, uh, Eric Folsom, and me. The usual hourly announcement, though, ahead of it, I will... Let you know that occasionally some uh, poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. And uh, having a little bit of technical difficulty here, trying to multitask. See if it'll go that way. No, that's not going to happen. Okay, we're going to work our way through this. I aired several readings from this the past two weeks to finish up unaired readings from that event. And I am just going to double check to make sure. Yes. Uh, we are going to, this will be the second and third rounds uh, in the And the Journey Continues open mic reading in uh, the October that was happened on October 1st in that monthly series and held at the Elm Cafe. Uh, in this round, uh, so done in the round, so I should mention that uh, there's like usually in groups of three, four, sometimes five, sometimes fewer, but most of them are that way today. In this first round, you are going to hear, let me see if I can reposition this. Uh, you're going to hear uh, readings by Justin Gao, Leanne Terrace, Tia Lun, Ken Chin, and Sarah M. Tij. Let's see if I got this thing uh, to work out here. Here we go. 
also American. So this one's for you guys. Yes. It's called Don't Hold Your Breath. No lives matter. Come join the noise nosedive towards disaster. Watch the hordes scatter as both sides clash over the motives of their masters. Can't focus past the caption, open wide for the rapture. Close another casket, so ends another sort of chapter. Sort through the after show chatter. From Alpha to Omega, check the mobile home records making a mess of the Mecca. It's one fucked up fiesta. Fill in empty vessels, cause the blood costs extra. Fire a gun to commence the riots for races. Conspire in quiet places, breathing tubes, produce a sigh of complacence in silent stasis. Weaving through ultraviolet phases on a nightly basis, it's a wasted oasis for the faceless, a sign of the age of extinction. Fanning the flames to the point of ignition. High-ranking brains anointed in fiction. A disjointed system of misdirection and deception. All the good people brandishing weapons, chanting and spewing their venom, sending a menacing message in all caps. Aspiring tyrants hoping for a callback to those good old days. A soundtrack of disarray spinning around on replay. See the clowns on display, but no one is laughing, because they all know what's happening. It's maddening. But the Mad King watches it all devolve from the counting house, putting up walls and pounding out an embarrassment to America in 140 characters or less. We've inherited a debt that can't be settled. Gone to such dark depths, but now we're on the final level. It's down to the wire. So town criers, raise your voices higher than the stakes. Break this empire of mock occupiers, Holocaust deniers, pushing propaganda flyers. So wait, who's going to tell the boss man that he's fired? Should have read the box. There may be some assembly required. <laughs> Justin Gowds, give him another hand. Bring up Leanne Terrace. your tender wound with timid, timid, gentle hands. This is where you are your most vulnerable and shy, swabbing and soothing, composing our shared intimacy, a simple act of love, an incision with, a red, with red swollen edges, patient, waiting to become a scar, the entrance of your raging battle, leading to your slowly beating heart. As we give Leanne Terrace another hand, let's bring up Tia Lund. Paper halls moving every second, second. 
you look and speak from that black box with the long window. You watch the hockey players moving in circles down there, let them do their job, taking off your clothes with their skates. You are very still for someone without ligaments. At some point you look up, notice the busy mites went back to sleep in the lines of the ceiling panels, nothing to stare at now but the people staring at you, so open and cold. They take the bag from you, the pills, the pens, the keys, the vial of green candle wax, the sunglasses, and anything long and rope-like. They leave the broken mirror, in case you felt inclined. The numbness wanes at 4 a.m., a mirrored self behind the curtain, screaming and reaching for the sharp objects. Your heart monitor spikes with every hand on her body. You just want them to let her go. They touch and you wish they would stop touching. Please, 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 please. With their hands, they repeat punishment for punishment. Have you been healed? Have you been humbled? Still yellow, always yellow, just a different shade. By the time your flesh swells to suffocation, you're sent back to the beginning. Told to try again next time. Bleached out yourself. Give another hand to Tia Lun. Let's bring up Ken Chin. In the uh, mid and late 80s, I was involved with the uh, wars down in Central America. One of the things which I had to do, uh, well, we were fighting basically against the oligarchy and the dictators in El Salvador and Nicaragua. One of the things I had to do was bring a load of supplies down to the refugee camp in uh, Nicaragua. And uh, this is about part of that trip. It's called Touch the Clouds. Heading south from the border town of Laredo, a dusty, dangerous desert highway. Parts of dead vehicles littered the roadside, like the bones of prehistoric monsters broiling under the desert sun. Excessive speeding and reckless driving. No reason to slow down. Destination still hundreds of kilometers away. Nothing to hit on this empty desert road. Unless it's another vehicle whose driver is thinking exactly the same thing. The desert, goes on, the desert road goes on and on forever. Tractor trailers belch thick black smoke, racing by without regard for safety. Small crosses adorned by flowers dot the roadside, memorials to victims of traffic fatalities. As the highway heads into the mountain range, the number of crosses increased dramatically. After driving over one rock face, we stopped in a valley to admire the rock cliff. The view of the rock cliff was breathtaking. So was a tractor trailer hanging vertically halfway down the cliff, with its back doors wide open, held in place only by tree limbs road on the cliffside. Road damage comes when you least expect it. Driving along cliffside, Lorraine sitting beside me screams, there's no road ahead. Too late to stop, I floored the accelerator. Only thin Mexican air beneath my wheels as we sailed over the gap in the road and landed with a jolt on the other side. Rain comes down fast and in torrents in these mountains. Going through one village after a rainstorm, where did all the people go? Not a single person could be seen. 
heard a noise behind me and saw in the rearview mirror a scene out of a disaster movie. A wall of water was heading straight for me, gushing foamy brown between the houses, carrying away everything in the streets. Flash flood. Felt like a rat trapped in a maze as I drove erratically through the narrow streets. When I got to the market square, the water hit me. I kept driving, hoping the engine wouldn't stop as the current carried a Volkswagen Beetle past me. Somehow I made it out of there and got to dry land. The townspeople knew this was coming and took refuge on higher ground. One stretch of the highway, as far as the eye could see, was a winding, meandering black ribbon positioned directly on top of a steep ridge. You could only drive at 40 kilometers per hour because every 30 seconds, the road meanders and turns 180 degrees. One wrong move, one miscalculation in driving, and it's hasta la vista, baby. Spent the entire afternoon driving at that numb mining pace, almost passed out from exhaustion by the time we got to a, hotel, to a hotel that evening. Headed up to one peak engulfed by passing clouds, billowing thick clouds. Had this idea of playing in the clouds. Lorraine cautioning next act, pointing out to the numerous crosses on the roadside. As we approached the peak, I slowed down. Visibility was almost zero. I could see why there were so many crosses. Nevertheless, I stuck my hand out the window and felt the cool dampness. On my way to Central America, I drove on one of the longest roads in the world, the Pan American Highway. Traveled the length of the legendary Sierra Madres Oriental. Reached up and touched the clouds. Give uh, Ken Chin another hand and bring up Sarah M. Tish. Hi. Um, well, this is a poem that I'm, I'm right now writing an expanded version of it to make it into a picture book, but I decided to revisit the uh, original version. Uh, it is called A Wager, or this version is called A Wager. Let's play checkers on the deck of a 1920s steamship. And if I win, you owe me ice cream chocolate chip. But if I lose in Augustine, you can choose where the time machine will take us next. Move your pieces, step with care, guard your soldiers, mind your squares. Cairo in 2018 is a sight to be seen, but between you and I, I would rather stop by the construction of Stonehenge again, or the Jupiter landing, and then travel back to see Shakespeare for tea. We could bring a trapeze. We could swing through the trees. You can king my piece, please. Thank you. And now it's your move. So give Sarah Hemptage another hand. Let's bring up Lyle Miriam. And it's always hard to know how to break these things where I'm uh, congratulating one person and bringing another person up. So, But anyway, Lyle will be coming up. But you just heard uh, Justin Gao, Leanne Terrace. Uh, wait a minute. Yeah. And make sure I'm on the right line here. Le Justin Gao, Leanne Terrace, Tia Lun, Ken Chin, and Sarah Emtage in the October 1st and the Journey Continues 
open mic reading in that monthly series held at the Elm Cafe. Up next from it, you'll hear, as I mentioned, Lyle Merriam coming up first, Joshua Schiff, Alyssa Cooper, and Adrian Yee. Let's go ahead and bring them up. This is called September Weekend. On such a lovely Saturday, there should be more people about enjoying the September sunshine while they busily check things out. The nip in the air says summer is gone and autumn is here to stay. The sun is bright, but the wind off the lake means colder weather is on the way. Now it's Sunday afternoon, so this is where the people are. Outside it's cloudy, dingy, and damp, but the atmosphere's bright at the bar. No one's paying much attention to the football game on the screen, or a dozen different conversations dissect the local scene. I hear a dozen different stories of what's going on in town today, who's done what and where and when, and what they've had to say. Thank you. Give Lyle Mary up another hand, and let's bring up Joshua Schiff. All right, this one's tough for me. Uh, it was tough for me to write it. Uh, Alzheimer's runs my family. I have a fascination with it. Uh, I wrote this for my father. I told my father it. We both cried. Um, hopefully, I can make it through it without crying myself. Uh, so, here we go. <clears throat> it's called Hello My Son <clears throat> Hello My Son As I hold you and stare Into your eyes So full of wonder and joy Welcome to the world My baby boy I wonder sometimes What's going on inside your mind As you look back at me crying Take it easy my child For I will watch you grow Guide you in this life, give you all of me, and everything you will ever need. Hello, my son, still so young, look at you, walking now, welcoming me home. Growing so big, my baby boy, playing with your cars and toys, eyes so full of wonder and joy. Hello, my son, you are no longer so young, as I look into your eyes and the man you have become. Sometimes I imagine, sometimes I daydream, of coming home from work and seeing my baby boy running up to me, asking to have my leftover sweet steep tea. <clears throat> Hello, my father. Oh, how this feels like deja vu. Of countless times I know, you have stared at me proud. Now here I am, staring proud back at you. I wonder sometimes, father, what's going on inside your mind. Sometimes you're okay, sometimes you're not. Almost as though you were lost in thought. In your own world while sitting in one spot. I know now your wrinkles have taken their toll from watching over me and helping me grow. As I watch you dream throughout the day, all the adventures you're having as your mind keeps fading away. Take it easy, my father. For I have watched you grow old as you guided me through this life and given me your all, everything I ever needed ever since I was small. 
I look into your eyes and as tears fill my own. For only a moment, it seems, you look at me as though you have returned from your dreams. <clears throat> you ask me, why, my son, do you cry as you wipe my tears from my cheek sides? I say, because you were dreaming again, Dad, and because you were the best father any son could ever have. You look at me and smile and say, hello, my son. You are no longer a child now. As so, as a man, you should know that these dreams are about you and how fast I watched you grow. <clears throat> I take myself back to all the memories we've had. I replay the moments when I had been so proud to be your dad. So know this, my son, that you were still my baby boy. <clears throat> no matter where life takes me, you are and will always be my pride and joy. Joshua Schiff, let's give him another hand, bring up Melissa Cooper. ceiling tiles followed me to the room where my father smoked joints in the window well. Shaking fingers, blowing smoke through a filthy screen, praying no one would smell it, and yet not caring if they did. The softness it offered was a warm blanket on a cold night. When you were locked in a darkened basement, you will cling to any crack of light. That month stretching into eternity, highway, cafeteria, hospital room, beep, 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 highway, cafeteria, hospital room, beep, beep, beep. My body remembers being inside hers, knows that this is not the sound that a heartbeat makes. Beep, 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 this body surviving on bad food and burnt coffee, on sugar packets and smoke. Beep, beep, beep. People die on the ICU every night all around us, monitors falling silent, nurses with blank eyes who have seen too much, and I watch the rise and fall on the LCD until my eyes burn begging it not to stutter, begging it not to stop. My dad with his elbows on his knees and his chin in his hands sinking into himself, collapsing. I will climb the pulse line like a mountain, dig my hands into every pixel until my fingernails are bloodied, bloodied like hers. Beep, beep, beep. I stare at my reflection in the mirror at night, white skin and black eyes. There is no sun in the ICU. I search for the places that look like her. I know they are there, but I'm coming up empty, water trickling through bony hands, turn this way and that. What would I look like with a tube down my throat, face swollen with steroids? I pull at the skin, pull back my lips and look for her in my teeth, something to remember when the ICU takes her away. I was inside her body once, flesh of her flesh, but in the hospital, I can't find her. Alyssa Cooper, let's give her another hand. Bring up Adrian Yee.
The trees know all and see all. They know what happens all around. And if you can be patient enough, they will tell you all you need to know. Tree perception and communication travel at a staggeringly slow, slow pace, a racing quarter of an inch per minute. That's a lot of minutes and waiting if you want a question answered. Patience is the only virtue you need to know in the forest. Knowing the forest is knowing the universe. All the metaphors are here to be seen and understood. All you will ever need to know will be found right here. Adrian Yeats, give her another hand, bring up Brent Recroft. And you just heard readings by Lyle Merriam, Joshua Schiff, Alyssa Cooper, and Adrian Yee. Again, in the October 1st, and the journey continues, open mic reading in that monthly series. Up next, and just mentioned, you're going to hear Brent Raycroft. Eric Folsom, Justin Gao, and me. This one's called uh, Career. I cheated. I waited. I let the poets go first. One of hunger. One of thirst. I cheated. I stole. I picked from the sick and the old and tendered as mine their gold. I cheated. I lied. I was one step ahead from the start. I inherited this art. Was Brent Raycroft. Let's give him another hand. Bring up Eric Folsom. again. Um, I'm going to read another one of my, what I've been calling unfaithful translations. I call them that for a reason. Uh, of Jean Cocteau. Uh, this is uh, number 16 in the series of cryptographies. Um, de la tache. And I'm sorry I need to explain something again. Um, partway through the poem, you'll hear Don Giovanni. That's Mozart's opera, Don Giovanni. In Spanish, he's Don Juan the seducer of women and a bad guy, okay? <laughs> and um, the poem refers to a scene in Mozart's Don Giovanni where um, he dresses up his servant as himself. So he's like, hey, let's change clothes uh, so that I can go visit a woman. And, but also the servant doesn't know that uh, people are waiting to attack Don Giovanni and they mistake the servant for Don Giovanni. The servant gets beaten up. There you go. Now you don't have to go see the opera. So, Jean Cocteau. De la Tache. Of the stain marking the blood when the clot congeals, we can never predict exactly the outline, nor the shadow labor the blind machine reveals as our heart sink flows from darkness to sunshine. Slyly, Don Giovanni made his servant take his master's disguise to be beaten in his place. 
these voices in my head tell me what words to speak. It's the same double cross. I get punched in the face. Because of you, my blood flows, blade of silent strife. But anyone else would complain about the gash, the desperate effort of twisting the knife as the many-throated hydra begins to thrash. Eric Paulson, let's give him another hand. I was uh, watching the full moon in the last full moon cycle, and uh, this I wrote this after. Moon. Illuminated by a sun we can no longer see in the night. The white-faced full moon hangs almost motionless. The full blackness of an empty sky behind its shadow. Thanks. Okay. It's still quite early, so we're going to try a third round. How many people brought three poems? And you know what I want to do first, though, because we've got some people that are going to leave now. I think it's important. We've heard some, this is what I would normally be doing at the very end. We've heard some wonderful poetry tonight. Give yourselves and everybody else a wonderful hand. And let's give it up one more time for the Alp Cafe and Grace, who's taking care of us tonight. Well, welcome back to a rarity of round three. Let's bring up Justin Dow. through this quickly so we can get to everybody. Anybody who wants to come see some tunes, I'm going over to Cafe Musiki after this, play some tunes. So open mic there after this. This one's called You Have Been Promoted to Bait. And it starts with a quote from Willy Wonka and the Chalk. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of the dreams. And this is not a drill. Hug your pets and pop your pills. Can't roll a boulder over the hill if there's a way but not a will. Who's left to pay the bills? Just put it on my tab. Abracadabra. Stab the cadaver. Don't feel bad. I'm just a stepping stone to a punching bag, a ladder to disaster. New episode, same running gag. No happily ever after. Just catastrophe and canned laughter. Full body cast, limbs atrophy and plaster. Iconoclast bastard, live fast and die faster. Wander the wrong path for the contrast. Ramming the sounds of songbirds in combat. I'm going off track. Hooks got me climbing up the walls like on back. Looks like the color of my soul's inside of the bond black. 
Tragic as a tar pit, there's no magic in this carpet. Just a carcass reaping the harvest, making art out of my catharsis, building an ark out of parchment. I own the night, trademark the darkness, harness the light fantastic. Bobbing for new hearts, grafted onto old parts, X marks the casket and post-mortem scratches. Got more notes than Mozart on acid. So flabbergasted masses, go grab your crowbars and your hatchets, curl up with the good book of matches, and see what catches fire. This hunger ain't a game, it's a pacifier for a fasting tiger. Stakes is claimed, playing tame for the appetizers. Tranquilizers and magnifiers form a franchise of flaming spiders. Landslide survivors can't hide the focus from the modus operandi. Standbys, the flies materialize. Don't you see the fear in his eyes? Frozen like a deer in the highs. No surprise. Spent a lot of years in disguise with zero supplies. Still, the hero survives to the final act with his spine intact. Doing fine, in fact, phenomenal. Simulcasting the chronicles of a moron with the monocle, mixing vodka with ramen noodles and rocket fuel. Sets his pocket watch to the autumn moon, clocking all the molecules on the follow through, knowing a man's gotta do what a man's gotta do. As Justin Gao, give him another hand, bring up Ken Chin. And you just heard readings by Brent Raycroft, Eric Folsom, Justin Gao, and me in the October 1st and the Journey Continues open mic reading. In that monthly series, up next in it, here are going to be Ken Chin, Sarah M. Tish, and Sasha Hill. That last one I read was about um, Mexico, by I was down south. This one is about just what happened before I crossed the border. Um, at that time, it was uh, it was one of the anti-American feelings um, because of what's happened in Central America. So I'm sure you could appreciate the irony, irony at the end of this poem. This is with Texas, broiling heat called Desert Mirage, broiling heat, a totally inadequate description as we drove through the shimmering heat waves rising from a semi-fluid asphalt highway in the distance moving like waves in the ocean. Even through my UV ray bands, the Texas desert was blinding white. Traveling at a good pace through that flat, endless terrain, still the wind felt like a blast furnace coming through the open windows of that old Canadian farm pickup truck. Lorraine, not used to the heat, slumped against the seat, staring bleakly. Endless miles of rock and sand. Mirages are expected in this heat, usually as large bodies of water. Parched lips smile as my own mirage appeared, as that familiar Derek symbol. I'm losing it, I said to myself, glancing at the water bottle beside me. The warm water could not quench my thirst or cool down the raging heat. I began to think how good a cold milkshake would taste or strawberry sundae or banana split. But the shimmering in the distance, that familiar ice cream cone with the curl on top, instead of disappearing, got bigger. A small building then appeared. Could it be, I asked myself, here in the middle of the scorching desert, in the middle of nowhere? Lorraine, Lorraine, look over there, I pointed excitedly. It's a Dairy Queen, she said weakly. 
I could not believe the words from my mouth as we pulled into the parking lot. God bless America. <laughs> What's Ken Chan? Let's give him another hand. Bring up Sarah Emptage. Okay. Um. Ah, this is about the old man of Scone Mountain. A long ways away on a mountain of scones, there lives an old man who has five broken bones. To help him to walk, he has got an odd cane, for his leg bone is one of the five that are slain. His very long beard holds a great many crumbs, for he eats scones all day, and occasionally plums. He has very round glasses and a lopsided grin, and though he eats all the time, he's actually quite thin. On the highest of scones, which is sugared and flat, the old man often sits where his ancestors sat. Then he rises again with a creak and a groan, and he dusts himself off, and he eats some more scone. How did your bones break? I asked him one day. I fell on the mountain, is all he would say. You fell on the mountain, I asked with surprise. That is what I said, and I don't make up lies. But how can it be that you broke all those bones, for this mountain is all made of very soft scones? My bones have grown brittle, he said with a sigh, and shall continue to do so till the day that I die. Thank you. As we give Sarah Emptage another hand, let's bring up Sasha Hill. Thank you. All right, I have a short piece. It's called To Kiss or Kill a Stranger. How do you approach? Hands, pistol ready, he's across the room, suit on, tie up, eyes, paranoid. You saunter, quick but not quick enough. His hands, your throat, tug of war. Everyone else stops sipping their brandy. His hands, vices, they look. You smile to them, not him. He smiles, teeth wet. Your hand reaches for an envelope opener behind his back. He pulls you closer, lips pursed. Your dagger closer, his eyes close. Your lips pursed. He kisses your lipstick, his fingers still pinching veins, your head swollen, ecstasy, magic, blood. On his suit and tie, your fingers let go of the envelope opener, his neck and tie drenched red, his eyes roll back. Everyone else goes back to sipping their brandy. Your lipstick stains his lips, his blood stains the carpet. How do you leave? Thank you. Give another hand to Sasha Hill. Let's bring up Joshua Schiff. Till the last grain. A lifetime of sand sits in the palm of our hands. Each grain represents a day of our lives. Each grain is meant to fall, but we try to catch the falling grain. Dwelling on that which has fallen into the past. Before you know it, other grains have also spilled through the cracks. Trying to catch one grain is insane. With so much more life to hold, 
to dwell on one makes the rest of the days feel the same. So let go as that one passes by. A new day is always a new reason to feel alive. Cherish each grain in your hand while you can, because we all have only a limited amount of sand. When we get down to our last grain, the world around us remains the same. Molecules of us turned to dirt and then to sand. Imagine all the lives we may have had in our hands. Give another round to Joshua Schiff and bring up Alyssa Cooper. And you just heard readings by Ken Chin, Sarah Emtish, Sasha Hill, Joshua Ship. And uh, coming up next, you're going to hear readings by Alyssa Cooper, Brent Raycroft, Eric Folsom, and me to end out that third round at the And the Journey Continues open mic reading at the Elm Cafe. This one on October 1st. Here we go. This one's not finished. I think it's probably going to have a second half at some point, but here's what we got so far. Dad's been Googling symptoms again, which means that I have to watch him careful, watch him close, means that I am denied my daughter position, means that I am mother again now, surrogate, watching for signs of the things beneath his skin, counting his cigarettes, breathing his smoke. Do they not know that I am too fragile to bear this weight? I can't forget the year that I was supposed to take care of him when they didn't tell me that he'd moved out until he moved back in. How much did he spend on hotel rooms that year? How much of himself did he leave in the sheets? Was Alyssa Cooper, give her another hand. Up next, Brent Raycroft, let's bring him up. Thanks again, Bruce. Thank you. It's hard not to write about the moon, eh? Yeah, it is. And it just keeps coming up. I think, I think uh, Pablo Neruda has like a hundred sonnets to the moon. Yeah. And probably other poets are just as vulnerable. Um, So this is from a sequence called Three Poems Called Moon. I'm just going to read one of them. The moon shines through the hunted clouds, sides and quarters, loins and flanks and tattered hides glide by of beasts that never lived and never died. Let's bring it right up. Let's bring up uh, Eric Folsom. Um, all right, I'm going to read another translation of Jean Cocteau. Um, since this is only an eight-line poem, and since I'm on my second glass of wine, I think I'll read the, the French, and then I'll read my unfaithful translation.
and, and no cultural references this time. You're, you're good. Quelques vins. Quelques vins inconnus dans mes casses à bourse de garde encerclées. Si je le voulais boire, à quoi sert que je l'ose Je n'en ai pas la clé. J'en ai source, ce vin vieux, nulle voix ne m'informe. Et s'il tombe en voyou, ou si c'est longuement qu'il faut que ce vin tombe avant que d'être beau. And now an object lesson in what happens when you're desperate for a rhyme. Mysterious fine wine in my cellar abides under security. But what good is the thirst to make my way inside if I don't have the key? Concerning such wine, no one ever says a word. Maybe it's gone sour. And the time for it to age is so long and absurd, waiting for happy company. Eric Volsom, let's give him another hand. And I have a confession to make. I drink maybe like two glasses of wine a year, and I've had half a glass of wine tonight, and I'm kind of shit-faced. <laughs> now, that said, did I forget anybody in the third round? Anybody that said they wanted to read again, and, and I missed. Just yourself. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I already did it once, but it, it needs to be done again. Now, those of you that stayed all the way to the end, thank you so much. And we've just heard some really, really wonderful readings and prose and poetry tonight. Please, again, give yourselves and everybody else another hand. And my last poem is, I don't know, it might still kind of be a work in progress. I'm still trying to figure it out, but it's called Late Summer. The first morning this season, season calling itself no longer summer, but instead early fall. The plants, the insects, will wear it more intimately than us. The sun will remember itself later, show some time before dusk, late afternoon. Come later winter, we will not as poignantly remember summer any of its days as fully as we will remember this, this crack of a door, that slight opening taking us from one place to the next, this passing, leading that led into a there, becoming here. Thanks, and thanks again for coming out. And you just heard uh, readings by Brent Raycroft, Eric uh, Folsom, Melissa Cooper, and me. 
And I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. You've been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Uh, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6, we stream live online, www.cfrc.ca. Both hours of the show will be saved to my blog space for it uh, in a, within the next hour or so at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. We'll be saved there for four years. Hope you can stay tuned for two hours of East Coast music and a show called Saltwater Music with host Rob Carnell coming up right after these. ...organization which has offered service to youth in the Kingston area since 1974. The goals of the organization are to allow youth to take responsibility for their behavior to reduce the number of youth involved in the young offender system, to reduce the number of people victimized by youth in our community, and to involve the community in youth corrections. The Youth Diversion Program believes that all members of our community have the responsibility to provide all youth with the opportunity to develop and grow to their fullest potential. They work in partnership with the community to develop quality programs to assist youth to make positive changes in their lives and at the same time, take responsibility for their actions. Further information, call 613-548-4535 or email info at youthdiversion.com. Electronics Kingston, your source for DJ gear and live band gear rentals for Kingston and the surrounding area. Brands such as Pioneer, Techniques, Rain, and so much more. New digital and vintage analog in stock for rental. Full white glove delivery, setup, operate, and loadout services for theater, dance floors, and live music festivals. Q Electronics, lighting, sound, and video. Look us up on Facebook for more. Whatever you're going through, we're here for you. 
We are the Peer Support Center, a confidential and non-judgmental drop-in space where you can come to talk to a fellow peer about anything at all. We have been supporting students at Queen's for at least 10 years now, and it wouldn't be the service we are today without the dedication and care of our amazing volunteers. We also wanted to thank you, Queens. Thank you for all the students for trusting us over the years with your stories and experiences and allowing us to help support you during your time here at Queens. University can be a challenging yet rewarding time, and we want students to know that we are here for them through the good times, the bad, and the in-between. Come stop by the Peer Support Center in JDUC Room 34. We are open seven days a week from noon to 10 p.m. Do you like to dance? Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11pm and midnight. Where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. Let The Hustle take you to midnight and Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.